Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Continue our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah chapter 10. I heard about a man who had a parrot. Anybody own a parrot? Uh, I don't know if we got any parrot owners here or ever in the past owned a parrot. Anybody? Huh, no, nobody's been brave enough to own one, I guess, huh? Well, this was a beautiful parrot. He had a really bad mouth. That's the problem. Okay, that's probably why you didn't own one. They sometimes don't always say the things you're, they're supposed to say. Um, but this parrot would swear for five minutes straight without repeating himself. And the man was embarrassed because the bird was driving him crazy in front of people. He was really embarrassed about that. So he tried to appeal to the bird by asking him to clean up his language. The parrot promised to change, but nothing happened. In fact, it got so bad, it in, in fact, it increased in volume and frequency. He finally got to be too much, and so the man grabbed the bird by the throat and started shaking him and said, Quit it! Quit it! Quit it! But this made the parrot angry, and he swore even more. The guy really got upset, and he locked him in the kitchen cabinet. Well, that just aggravated the bird, and he started clawing and scratching, making all kinds of racket. And when the guy finally let him out, the parrot let loose. Oh, man. Saying things that made the man blush. At that point, the fellow was so upset that he threw him into the freezer. For the first few seconds, the bird squawked, and he screamed, and he thrashed around, and then there was silence. And so the man just waited, and when he started to wonder if the bird was hurt, after a few minutes of not hearing anything, he was so worried that he opened the freezer, and the bird calmly climbed down to the man's outstretched arm and said, I'm really sorry about all the trouble I've been giving you. I make a solemn promise and vow to clean up my language on from now on. The man was completely amazed he couldn't believe the transformation that had come over this parrot as a result of being in the freezer for just a few minutes. And the parrot went, then turned to the man and said, I just have one question. What did the chicken do? Well, this morning, we're going to learn about some promises, some vows. The people of God made here in Nehemiah chapter 10, and uh, God's people weren't thrown into the freezer, but they did feel the sting of God's word. We saw that in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and after hearing what God wanted from them and owning up to their persistent rebellion... Verse 38 of chapter 9 says that the people made a sure covenant or a binding agreement. They made a, a sure covenant to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And they put it in writing and they sealed it. And putting a seal on the document is a serious matter because it meant taking a solemn oath before the Lord and those who agreed to do this covenant are listed here in chapter 10 and verses 1 through 27. I thought about having Dan read that this morning, but uh, thought he might 
never read for me again. I'm not even going to attempt to read verses 1 through 27 this morning. But we have these people listed here. Those who signed this covenant. Now the law governing oaths and vows is found over in Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, where it says, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Some of us are thinking, you know, we're in a political election cycle now, and you'd wish some of these guys who are making promises would fulfill their promises like this. But since an oath involved the name and possible judgment of God here, it was not to be taken lightly. The Lord Jesus warned against empty oaths in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33 through 37. But the Bible contains many examples of people making vows and covenants with God only to break them later on. Exodus 24, the Israelites promised all the words which the Lord had said we will do. But you know what? In less than six weeks, the same people constructed a golden calf and they began to bow in worship before it. They made a vow and then they broke it. In Mark 14 and verse 29, we find Peter promises Jesus, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Hours later, Peter responds to a servant's girl's question by swearing in verse 71 says in Mark 14, but he began to curse and to swear saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. He made a promise and he broke his promise. And that leads me to a question. Are vows useful for us today? And I think... They are for at least two good reasons. First, they help us focus. Uh, you know, sometimes we're told, you know, when we get a little uh, out of sorts and someone says, now focus, <laughs> focus here. But you know, that's what a promise does, a vow does. It helps us to focus. When we make a vow, you're saying that you're going to do something very specific and we can say, Lord, you know, I need to witness more. Or we can say, I'm going to invite my neighbor to church and I'm going to give him a book so that he, uh, that, uh, to him so he can open, uh, it can open up a conversation with him. And so we make a vow and help us to focus on what we need to be doing. Secondly, vows allow us to express our love. You know, that's why couples make vows during their marriage ceremony. It's the language of love. Love is more than just a feeling. It's a commitment or a promise to be married until death do us part. God is a covenant-keeping God, even when we don't keep our end of the deal. Now, you may have made promises to God in the past, and you haven't kept them. You may have broken some of your vows. Now, if you have, you're not alone. Jeremiah 31.32 says that God's people broke the covenant on a regular basis. 
In verse 33, it says that he will one day make a new covenant in which he says, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus inaugurated his new covenant. And listen to what he said in Mark 14, verse 24. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now in the Old Testament, we're expected to live up to our end completely. Everything comes from us. In the New Covenant, nothing comes from us. Everything comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his grace, we can surrender, we can submit, we can obey out of love, not fear. Now, while it may be helpful to make a vow or a promise to God today, remember this, we don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God, but because we believe the promises of God and we act upon those. Now, having said that, many of us never come to the point of getting serious in our work with God or walk with God simply because we never get specific with Him. You know, we hear sermons and we uh, and sense the Spirit's tug at our heart. But until we decide to completely be committed to Him, we won't be. And I invite you this morning to think through any decisions that the Lord wants you to make. Perhaps you've been challenged or convicted by the Lord even during this series of messages that we've been looking at here in Nehemiah. But listen to the Lord. Decide right now to put into practice what you need to do. And if you've broken some promises with him or with others, maybe you need to confess that before him and before them. Notice, first of all, submission to God's word. As a result of hearing God's word, the Israelites made four decisions. The first one is found there in chapter 10 and verse 29. It says, They claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and the statutes. Now here's vow number one, submission to God's word. They were totally serious in their desire to devote themselves to everything that was spelled out in God's law, in the Bible that they had. Now who does... God used to make an impact? Does he use super saints? Does he use heroes? Heroes. I heard that an unsung hero is a person who can't sing and he doesn't. You have to think about that a little bit maybe. Who does God use? Heroes? Pious religious people? No, listen to the words of Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. The word perfect there speaks of being fully committed. The key is devotion. We need to remember that the depth of our devotion determines our impact. God is not looking all over the earth for strong people. God is not looking for great people. God is not looking for perfect people. Or even religious people. 
This morning as he scans this congregation this morning here at Spooner Baptist Church, he's looking for some devoted disciples, some men and women, boys and girls who are going to be committed to him. He's looking for the regular person who can pour out, he can pour his strength into. In order for that to happen, we need to be submission, submitted to him and committed to him. It was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, that once said, was asked what his secret was for his incredible ministry. This is what he said. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, but from this day I got the poor of London on my heart, and I caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them. And on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was. In Nehemiah 10, people were saying they were seriously committed to God and His Word, and they were willing to commit to God so that God would fall upon them and they would carefully obey what He said. I wonder... Do we have that same submission and dangerous devotion today? Does God have all of you? So their first promise here was submission to the word. A second promise, after submitting themselves to God and his word, the believers make a second vow to separate from the world. We find that in verses 28 through 30. Notice it there. In verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the porters and the singers, the Nephilims, and all that they had separated themselves from the people of the lands and the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. When you think about it, separation is simply total devotion to God. No matter what the cost. When a man and a woman get married, you know what I did say, man and woman get married, okay? I want to be clear about that here at Spooner Baptist Church. That's the kind of marriage we believe in. That's the kind of marriage we're going to promote. When a man and a woman get married, they separate themselves from all other possible, uh, I was going to say inmates, all other other mates, And they give themselves completely to each other. We separate from others to the one, to the one who will be our life, life's mate. And the Israelites separated from the peoples around them and to God and to his word. They went from the others to God. This was not about ethnic pride or a sense that the Israelite gene pool was superior than of all the other peoples. Rather, it had to do with how they worshiped God and how they honored Him. Wrong, relations, wrong relationships can nullify a believer's distinctive witness. God wanted His followers to be a missionary people, and so it was vital that their message not be corrupted. In declaring this prohibition, the Lord was concerned about both the purity of their faith and the holiness of their lives. They've been entrusted with the most wonderful message in the world and nothing was going to be allowed to corrupt it. 
I think there are two reasons why marriages with pagan people are disastrous. It says here in verse 30 that they would not give their daughters unto a people of the land, nor take their daughters for, uh, take their daughters for our sons. Number one is there were clear biblical warnings. When two people in the ancient world made a marriage agreement, they normally confirmed their commitment in the presence of their gods and gave each other idols as a prominent place in their new home. We see over in Joshua chapter 13 or 23 and verse 13, it says that the heathen spouses would become snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. And so there had been clear biblical warnings that this was not to take place. There was also an abundant historical evidence. Overwhelming evidence of history is that unequally yoked marriages led to a decline in Israel's spiritual and moral life. Nehemiah 13 and verse 26 will ask the question, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations were there, was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all of Israel? Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin? You know, we're more influenced by other people than most of us care to admit. And mixed marriages are a danger. They were a danger then and they're a danger now. Especially our young people this morning who will someday contemplate marriage. God's concern is that when a believer marries a non-believer, the stage is set for conflict. For compromise and at times outright conformity. Second Corinthians six fourteen clearly says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. Let me be very clear about this. You may know someone who's married to an unsaved spouse, and perhaps they're trying to live out the teaching of 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Well, verse 1 and 2 put it this way, If any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold their your chaste conversation coupled with fear. You know, we need to teach our children and our grandchildren And we need to pray for our children and our grandchildren that someday as they'll be looking for a life's mate, while it may seem like a harmless thing to date a non-Christian, especially when they're teenagers, watch out. God cares about your spiritual life. He cares about your ability to be a clear witness to Him. And on the authority of God's word, this is not my idea. This is not my opinion. This is the authority of God's word, young people. Don't deliberately disobey God in this area. The question is not, will this relationship work? But will this relationship enjoy God's best blessing and fulfill his will? Now, I know it's not easy for some to hear, but if a person is truly submitted to God and His Word, they will honor Him in all of their relationships as well. You know, if our children are 
uh, are to put him first, they should not enter a marriage relationship with someone who does not also put the Lord first. Submission to God's word. Separation from the world. And then thirdly, Sabbath for God's people. Now after pledging themselves to submit to the word of God, to live separated lives, the believers renewed their covenant with a third vow. The Sabbath is for God's people. We see this in verse 31. And if the people of the land bring ware of or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. In Nehemiah's time, it was necessary for God's law about the Sabbath to be clearly understood. Now, we don't observe the Sabbath in the sense that they did today. We observe Sunday. Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, I believe there are some principles, though, that we can take from this Sabbath uh, vow. Number one, it was a day set aside to honor the honor God. It was distinctive from the other days. Uh, it was given to God so they might offer worship to Him without being distracted by the demands of everyday life. Some people think, well, Sunday, that's just another day I can goof off. I can take it easy. I can, I can uh, do what I want instead of going to work. Well, here it was... A day to honor God. It was a day of rest. That was another principle that we see here. Relaxation is a vital ingredient of effective living. God set the pattern for this in Exodus 20, verse 11. He said he rested on the seventh day. And the Israelites worked with no breaks in their weekly schedule when they were slaves in Egypt. You know, uh, Pharaoh didn't say, well, take Sunday off or take the Sabbath off. No, he made him work seven days a week. But God did not ever want this to be repeated. You know, there was one man that challenged another to an all-day wood chopping contest. I knew this story would be of interest to some of you. You like to do wood chopping, right? Some of you love it. You live for it. Some of you get paid to do it. But here's a wood chopping contest. The challenger worked very hard, stopping only for a brief lunch break. And the other man ate at a a leisurely lunch and took several breaks throughout the day. At the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other man had chopped a lot more wood than he did. He says, I don't get it. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest, and yet you chopped more wood than I did. To which the winning woodsman responded, Didn't you notice I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest? Now, if you're feeling a bit dull today, perhaps you need to schedule some rest into your schedule and get some sharpness again. You can chop a lot more wood with a sharp axe than you can a dull axe, right? So it was a day... To honor God, it was a day of rest. It was a day to help others. 
Now, Israelite employees had a compulsory rest day automatically written into their employment contracts, I believe. This helped others to enjoy the blessing of rest. And it helped them to help others. It was also a day to declare truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy and it gave Israelites multiple witnessing opportunities. To their unbelieving neighbors, it proclaimed in very practical terms the truth that God of God comes first. And you know, when your neighbors see you get into your car dressed in your Sunday best, going to church on Sunday, that's a testimony that many times will be speaking to them very loud and clear. It's an important example or model for, for us today. You know, from the beginning of, of, of the church, uh, when the church was established, Christians made the Lord's Day their appointed day for worship, for rest, for service, for witness. And while avoiding legalism that the Pharisees fell into, most of us can do a better job of looking for ways to keep Sunday special. The Israelites also promised to observe the sabbatical year. Every seventh year they were to let the land lie idle so that they would re- it would restore itself. And to obey God in this way, they certainly needed to trust him with the needs during their seventh year. And it seems to me that obedience to God always involves trust. We cannot always see what's coming up. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, we all have a plan Most of you are going to get up in the morning like you do every Monday morning. You're going to go to work. So you think. God may have something else in mind for you tomorrow. And so everything that we do involves trust. We can't see what's coming up. But if we're doing what God says we're supposed to do, He's not going to disappoint us. And their commitment to commemorate the sabbatical year was a great step of faith. And it's a beautiful illustration of Matthew 6.33 where it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then you also notice there in verse 31, they also canceled all debts. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? They promised that every seven years they would live out a renewed scale of values that the people matter more than money. Now, I don't know, know if the bank's going to go for that. But they were keeping the Sabbath, they were keeping the sabbatical years, and they were ways of saying no to the maximum acquisition, a life of maximum acquisition. My highest goal is not to make the most I can, but to spend my life trying to keep everything that I have. There's a fourth vow here, and that is to support God's work. A fourth pledge, support for God's work. We find this in verses 32 through 39. Now you'll find in these verses the phrase, house of our God. It's used nine times in this section. It refers to a restored temple. And the people were promising to follow God's priorities by submitting to Him, by separating from the world, by keeping the Sabbath, by supporting the work of God. And verse 39 sums up their commitment. It says there, we will not forsake the house of our God. We will not forsake nor neglect the house of our God. 
The temple in Jerusalem stood at the heart of the country's religious and moral and spiritual life, and in symbolic terms, it proclaimed the presence and power of God among the people and the centrality of spiritual matters. Sometimes I wonder, is the centrality of spiritual matters a reality in our lives? This passage covers an impressive series of promises to support God's work in a variety of different ways. Gives us seven insights on how giving, our giving can support God's work. Number one, it was responsible giving. Look at verse 32. Also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. In verse 35... It says, and to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all fruit of our trees, year by year, unto the house of the Lord. People were saying, we charge ourselves yearly. They assumed some responsibility. They owned it. And they gave what they owned because they saw it was their privilege and their responsibility. Secondly, it was obedient giving. They didn't practice impulse giving. But instead... They gave it as an expression of practical obedience. Those who love God will do what he says. They were, we made ordinances for us, it said there in verse 32. And verse 34 and verse 36 is written in the law. Notice the law, it was there, it was in the, in the scriptures. And God has been good to his people. And generosity is expected from them. There is nothing remotely optional about the support of God's work. Here we find that everyone was required to give in one form or another. It's yet another way to demonstrate that God came first in their lives. It was obedient giving. It was obedient to God's word. Thirdly, it was systematic giving. Nothing haphazard about their giving. Verse 32 says that they were to bring a third of the silver shekel each year. Verse 34 states that lots were drawn to determine when families were to bring a contribution of wood at set times each year. Verse 35 tells the first fruits were brought each year. You see, there's an orderliness about their offerings and the system that was followed. The people were precise, uh, precisely doing what was expected of them. Now the New Testament teaches a systematic giving as well. In 1 Corinthians 16, in verse 2 it says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, and there be no gatherings when I come. Fourthly, it was proportionate giving. The reference to the wood offering suggests that there were some poor people in Israel They had an opportunity to give gifts to the Lord that demand time rather than money. You know, it takes a lot of time to chop the wood. The temple needed regular supply of firewood. Why? Sacrifices. The sacrificial fires had to keep burning. Everyone, regardless of income, would gather wood and take it to the temple. In addition, Israel's sacrificial system recognized that not everyone would make the same kind of offering. If someone could not afford the cost of a young bull, a male goat, or a lamb, they were able to offer two doves or two young pigeons. 
If they couldn't afford that, Leviticus 5 tells us that it allowed them to bring some fine flour as an offering. It's not the amount that is given which is important, but it's the spirit in which we make our offering. We should give in proportion of how we've been blessed. Again, the New Testament echoes this principle in 1 Corinthians 16 and as we even read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Number five, it was sacrificial giving. They were to bring to God's house the first fruits of their crops and of every fruit tree. Verse 35, to offer the first of their crops was to declare that God was the giver of all things, that everything belongs to Him, and that He is worthy of the best we can offer Him. And here's a helpful principle to remember. While not everyone can give the same amount, everyone can make the same sacrifice. It's not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Someone has said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. And someone else put it this way, I don't believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Sacrificial giving. Number six, it was comprehensive giving. They were not only to bring their crops and their money, they were also to bring their firstborn sons and their animals to the Lord. Look at verse 36. In verse 36, it tells us there, also the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herd and the flocks to bring to the house of our God unto the priests that minister into the house of our Lord. God's not just interested in our money. He wants our hearts. In fact, He wants everything. Because everything we have belongs to Him. It was comprehensive giving. And then it was prescribed giving. They were not only to bring their first, but also a tithe. A tithe of their crops to the Lord, according to verse 37. Giving a tenth of their produce or their income to the Lord has long and a long and dignified history among believers. It's an appropriate guide for Christian giving. Someone has said the tithe is a great place to start. And I'm convinced that the tithe is a minimum we should be giving to further the Lord's work. You know, tithing can be a great blessing. And I recommend it, but you know what? There are some dangers in tithing. You know, it's easy to give with the wrong motives. We can give out of a sense of duty or fear or even grief. You know, if I tithe, God must prosper me. That's not the right attitude. Secondly, a danger would be thinking that we can do whatever we want with the rest, the 90%. And thirdly, giving only the tithe and failing to love, give love offerings to the Lord. That's dangerous. Someone has said that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there, your heart, uh, there will your heart be also. And we need to be the, like the believers here in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39. We will not forsake the house of our God. You know, when it comes to giving, we can do it for at least three reasons. Because we have to, that would be the law. 
Because we ought to, that would be out of obligation. Or because we want to, and that would be grace. I don't know about you, but I want to give to the Lord. I came across a list of ten reasons to give 10% or more to the Lord's work. Number one, it's a tried and true pattern of giving. It will help you revere God more in your life. It will help you harness the dragon of materialism. It will serve as a practical reminder that God owns everything. It will allow you to experience God's provisions in incredible ways. It will encourage you to trust in God. It will ensure you a a treasure in heaven. It will strengthen the ministry of our local church. It will support church staff and missionaries. It will help accomplish needed building projects. Well, those are good reasons to give to God's work. Now, we said here that uh, the giving here was responsible, it was obedient, systematic, it was proportionate, it was sacrificial, it was comprehensive, and it was prescribed. Nobody here at Spooner Baptist Church is making you give. You see, they had a requirement back then. But you know, if you're obedient to God's word, God's word will give you the reason to give. If you want to be obedient to God's word, it's not an organization that's going to make you do it. It's God that's going to do it. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you on the wrong runway? Some years ago, a Singapore Airlines jumbo jet that crashed on takeoff, killing at least 81 people. Investigators determined that the jet was on the wrong runway when he tried to leave for Los Angeles. The pilot realized at the last moment that he was on a strip closed for repairs and he plowed into some heavy construction equipment. And just seconds before the jetliner crashed and caught fire and broke into three sections, the pilot screamed out, Something there! Apparently the pilot knew what runway he was supposed to be on and was not misdirected by the control tower. And yet the officials have admitted there was no barrier set up to block planes from going on this closed runway. In addition, the lights on the runway were turned on because of the bad weather. Now I'm wondering, again, I ask you this question, is there someone here this morning that's on the wrong runway? It might look like everything's going okay in your life. You might even be thinking, you know, everything's all right. But actually, you're headed for a crash. The Bible is very clear. If you want to do things your way, if you want to have things the way you want them, you're going to head for a collision. God wants you and me to make some investments that will last by, number one, submitting to God. That answers the question, who's the pilot of your life? Separating from the world, that covers who we spend time with. Practicing a Sabbath rest, that deals with how we spend our time. And supporting God's work, that involves how we spend our money. Well, those are things that we should all be concerned about. 
Who's the pilot of your life this morning? Who do you spend time with? How do you spend your time? And how do you spend your money? If you're submitted to God and He has all of you, then you're cleared for takeoff in your relationships with your time and with your finances. And here's another way to look at it. If you look at a person's friendships, if you look at a person's calendar, if you look at a person's checkbook, you could determine whether or not they are fully submitted to God and completely committed to His cause. Now you know who your friends are. You know what your calendar's like. You know what your checkbook looks like. Are you submitted to God? Are you completely committed to His cause this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven.